Last week, Richard talked to you about the power of stories. A story, he said, can help us to remember, to put the pieces together. We tell stories when someone is born and when someone dies. Those mysterious little story teachings that go by the name of parables tell us things about the nature of life and the universe that we might completely miss otherwise. David, Richard said, would never have listened to Nathan if Nathan had simply accused him of breaking faith with his general Uriah and with God. But David did listen to the story of a poor man and a little lamb, a story that never literally happened, but which was nonetheless deeply true. Do not take what has not been given to you, said that story. And today's story shows us what happens when taking becomes more important than giving and suggests that true wholeness entails an acceptance of brokenness. If I am to be whole, I am called to remember both my strengths and my weaknesses. As we come to the end of the story of David, and today, yes, is the final installment, we meet a truly mixed man. We're all mixed. Perhaps one of the attributes of saints is that they know this. Stories help us to live because the best stories are true. Even the worst stories are revealing. But the best stories have been told and retold and added to and tweaked for generations, if not centuries and millennia. They have been tested by numerous lives and numerous communities. They have multiple characters and multiple perspectives which allow very different people to enter a common space. Like the stone rejected by builders that becomes the head of the corner, stories overlooked details yield up secret messages that change the way we understand ourselves and our actions and may even catch us by surprise. Look at what Uncle Tom's cabin did to our country's attitudes towards slavery. Stories stir us up and make us think. The Bible is the story, told over thousands of years, of our relationship with God and God's relationship with us. It did not spring full-blown out of an author's mind like a novel. It was not even written by a single author. In fact, we have no idea who most of the authors even were. The first part of it, the Old Testament, is a compendium of narratives and teachings shaped and told for generation after generation before they were written down. 
Sometimes different versions of the same story can be found on the same page, as if to warn us not to get too rigid in our views of what is right. The second part of the Bible, the New Testament, is really just a commentary on the first part, written from the perspective of the life and teachings of Jesus. The Bible is not history in the way that Thucydides was history, because for the most part it cares less about factual accuracy than it cares about truth and meaning. And truth and fact don't even have to be the same. I will suggest to you that they are rarely the same. And it's interesting that I even have to teach this, but we are such a fact-besotted society that we confuse data for truth. It isn't, because fact and data can only be about one thing. And truth, at least as I have been blessed to experience it, is always a conversation and a collaboration between many things. Which brings me to Richard's second point. We can't intellectualize religion, because if we do, we'll kill it. I love ideas. In fact, I bet you there are few people in this room who love ideas with the passion that I love ideas. But that said, I know that ideas are simply tools. They are not truth. How many of you have ever uttered your best, most brilliant, and life-changing idea only to have it totally misunderstood and misquoted by everyone in the room? It's quite an experience. And part of the reason for that is that ideas, no matter how well I express them, are really rather unique to me. They are the creature of my brain and my quirky language. And I and you and the universe and God is a lot more than just a single brain. And so those doctrines of the church, which I adore, salvation, redemption, providence, sin, creation, all that great stuff, they're not there to close the story down into one given interpretation. They are, in fact, tools to help us cope with the ambiguity and contradictory nature of the stories. They're there to give us an idea of something to look for. They're like a map or a guidebook. And I know that not one of you would exchange a map and a guidebook of Paris for a visit to the place itself, but that's what so many of us do with our religion. We take the map and the guidebook and think that somehow that is the experience with the living God that God asks us to take. That somehow this map is any kind of replacement for the wonderful task of meshing our stories with the sacred story and discovering the living God at work in our lives. Now, as a... Um, an example story for us to work with, we have been following the tale of King David for absolute weeks by now. Anointed as a child, we've seen David tend sheep, 
defeat Goliath, love Jonathan, fight Saul, become king, dance before the ark and estrange his first wife, Michal, uh, take another man's wife without asking, and finally, in today's final installment, see his rebellious son, Absalom, killed in battle. I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, said the prophet Nathan at the end of last week's reading. Now David, you may or may not know this, David had eight wives. Only one of them, Bathsheba, became his wife when he was king. The first one, Mishal, he married while he was still serving King Saul, and the other six he married during his battles with King Saul as he was forging tribal alliances all over the place. So we have Ahinoam, who was the second wife, and she gave birth to Amnon, who was David's firstborn son. Remember, Mishal can never have children. And then along comes David's fourth wife, Maacah, and she was the mother of Absalom and Absalom's sister, Tamar. Now, here is where the plot thickens, my friends. Just as David lusted after Bathsheba, so did his firstborn son, Amnon, lust after his half-sister, Tamar. It became so all-consuming that Amnon took to his bed, weak with disordered desire. <laughs> Do not take what has not been given to you, warned the prophet Nathan. This is a habit that is hard to break. Indeed, in a culture of conquest and achievement, Taking what has not been given to me may even be seen as an expression of strength. Now, last time I was here, I threw a quote from St. Paul at you, which I'm going to throw again, which is, power is made perfect in weakness. The weak can't take what hasn't been given to them. But Paul also knows that people with little to lose often have a much clearer picture of what's really going on in the world than people with interests to protect. And part of me will always wonder if the fact that David got away with grabbing Bathsheba caused him to turn a bit of a blind eye when his eldest son went out lusting too. You know, boys will be boys and all of that and mistakes will be made. However, as God's anointed one, David is also subject to the rules of God's kingdom. And one of the main ones that you will see throughout the scriptures is that nothing in God's kingdom is ever lost and no cry ever goes unheard. And indeed, the stone rejected by builders will often turn around to become the head of the corner. So let's get on with our tale, shall we? Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea, 
And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that I might eat it out of her hand. <laughs> so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight so that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not force me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the scoundrels in Israel. Such a thing is not done in Israel. In my mind, these are some of the most poignant words in scripture. Right up there with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tamar is dishonored. And immediately, because Amnon really hates himself, he takes all that hatred and projects it on her. And not only has he dishonored her, then he throws her out as if she's totally expendable. And the story continues. When King David heard of all these things, he became very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. The king lets him get away with it, in other words. His own house now divided, the king must choose on whose side to be on. And he chooses the son over the daughter. And so it all falls upon Absalom to avenge his sister. And with that comes the rupture with his father and the factions that always form when sides are taken. And after many years of fights and reconciliations, it's a very twisted tale. The two men at last find themselves at war with one another because David would not punish Absalom either because he loved him. Such a thing is not done in Israel. When the unspeakable happens, it is very hard to recover from it. Life goes on. Yes, it does, because it has to. But it will never be quite the same. When things divide a community or a family right down the middle, 
the whole story turns impossible. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Love can really only do its full and life-giving work when love is whole and has not been betrayed. And this is only one of the reasons that the promises that we make to those who love matter so much. When I do premarital counseling, I have this little fidelity speech. And I say, fidelity may be the most important gift you give to one another. Trust in a marriage gives a couple the freedom to live full lives. The freedom to have all kinds of friends, the freedom to come and go. But once trust is broken, even when things are patched up, suspicion will always linger, even if just a little bit. Nothing can be as it was. And even when I have been forgiven, I still need to deal with the things that I have set in motion. And the David story is a very, very human story about a man who could not deal with all the things he had set in motion. All of us make mistakes. And many, if not most of us, make some very big mistakes. Mistakes can make me more passionate. They can transform me. But you know what this story tells me? And that is I always have to keep my eye on where my mistakes may be hiding because at any moment they can jump up to blindside me. The best thing I can do is be aware if I want to turn my mistakes into real compassion. And that gets me to the subject of love. Love is all about the great mystery of achieving right relationship with others. Love asked me to wait, to step back, and really listen to the other. While love's dark cousin, desire, tells me to go ahead and just take what is not mine. And disordered desire tells me even more to go and take it right now to have it all because I'm worth it. Disordered emotions thrive on those kind of deceptions. David and his family experienced very vividly what happens when love turns into power. When David betrayed Uriah, he was compelled to live the rest of his life in the shadow of betrayal. He came out looking okay, but that does not mean that things were okay all around. Indeed, things were not. Much later, Jesus would give his very life in the shadow of betrayal. His death on a tree suspended between heaven and earth, hauntingly like the death of Absalom. For Jesus, as our opening hymn reminded us, is both the Father and the Son, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. The gap between heaven and earth cries out to be bridged. Do not take 
what has not been given to you. God is so generous. And Paul says, let all of us speak the truth in love. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. I can't think of better advice. Stories, good stories, the best stories do not yield easy answers. Stories invite us to linger in their difficulties, to go over them again and again for new insights. They are the endless and changing conversations we have with others as we try to discover our own deepest truths. And church, church is the ongoing practices where all our stories illuminate God's story. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, read desire, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, read disordered. And on that note, we are now ready to confront the riddles of Jesus. But that, my friends, will have to wait until next week. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R MV for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.